How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Lord, would you come and speak to us through your word and lead us uh, closer to your heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Warm welcome to you if you're visiting this morning or if we haven't met yet. My name is Dave uh, Larley. I'm, as you can tell, one of the priests here. And um, we are four weeks, we will be after this Sunday, four weeks into Lamentations, which is um, certainly a book in the 20 years I've been in this line of work, I've never, we've never really done this. I don't know if Chris had. And it just felt like the, after the conversations pastorally we've been having, that um, it might be a help. It may not be. And if it's not a help, there's great coffee in the hallway. You may want to stroll the halls and, uh, you know, totally get it. Because sometimes this is all about timing. And uh, what we've looked about, what we've seen so far is Lamentations is a poem. Actually, it's made up of five poems. And they're in Hebrew poetry, the structure of the poem is in an X, right? So you've got these two strands coming down. You've got order. You've got chaos. And last week, we came to the peak, the summit of the poem, even though we're only halfway through. And at the very heart of the book of Lamentations, the very center is this one verse, great is thy faithfulness. All right? So if you were streaming this on Netflix as a box set, <laughs> you could skip the rest. No, not really. Uh, but our, our literature tends to culminate at the end. And so we've hit the peak already. And now what we're going to look at is what comes next. And so... Um, some of the themes we've already picked up uh, just by way of introduction is that what does it mean to lament? And what we, some of the encouragement we have here is that there's an expectation that we would be vocal in our suffering. We would pray and bring our pain and bring all of it to him, both in prayer and praise. And we've seen that lament is a powerful posture in prayer that brings with it not only the ability to heal the hurts, but also to right injustices. A conversation that people will often have with me uh, or Chris is how do we get back to how it was? And there is no back, there's only through. And lamenting is a powerful way to move through it. And as we lament, something happens we discover that God is there in our pain. We're reminded again that, the, that God himself stepped into human history, 
in the person of Jesus Christ and endured great suffering. In fact, he endured the utmost suffering so that, to, that we might identify with him when we go through difficult things, when we go through pain. And we discover as well that we're, we are not alone in our lament. First thing we discover is that we have a community around us who can aid us in our lament, but we also have a God who laments. We have a God who laments, which is a powerful thing. So what does chapter four have for us this week? Well, chapter four is an acrostic, like a acrostic poem like the others, not an acrostic. That's a totally different medium I don't understand. Um, where Rachel does. Um, where was I? Yes, it's an acrostic poem that, you know, is stretched, and it's, uh, but it's full of a vivid and disturbing depictions. It's poetic, okay? So it's, it, it's punchy. It'll get you if, as you read through it. And it's depicting the two-year siege of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonian Empire. And it's a contrast how things used to be in Jerusalem of the past and how terrible they became during the siege. So children used to laugh and play in the streets, but now they beg for food. The wealthy used to eat lavish meals, but now they eat whatever they can find in the dirt. The royal leaders used to be full of splendor, but now they're famished, they're dirty, they're unrecognizable. The, and the anointed king from the line of David has been captured and dragged away. So the poem's power comes from the shock of these contrasts, and it's exploring the depth of the suffering that Israel brought on itself. And it all comes down, understanding this poem all comes down to understanding the difference between a jackal and an ostrich. It all comes down to understanding the difference between a jackal and an ostrich. The theologians agree that underneath the comparing and contrasting that goes on here, and the helpful framing that we have on how to lament, there's an indication about how Jerusalem got to where it was so desolate. And as I said, it comes down to jackals and ostriches. So in your bulletin on page seven, turn with me to verse three. It's a funny thing to talk about animals at church, maybe. Um, but how did Jerusalem get to a place of such devastation and desolation? Did they simply become unclean? They just simply do things they weren't meant to do in, in worship? Did they simply accommodate the patterns of behavior that led to destruction? Well, let's think about a jackal. What is a jackal? A jackal is kind of like a dog. And they eat carrion. They eat dead animals on the streets. And so in the Jewish mind, they are unclean, right? And so they're, they're like the lowest. But they're not the lowest of the low because we're introduced to another animal. Because at least the jackals, as it says here, have the decency to nurse their young. So even the most unclean dog will care for its young, right? What we're dealing with, what happened here is that something else utterly devastating happened to Jerusalem. They became like ostriches. And what's so wrong with an ostrich? I mean, they make great boots, right? I guess we make the boots out of them, but never mind. Um, 
The daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. Um, Jewish thought doesn't have much to say about ostriches because of the way they behave with their young. They bury their eggs in the sand and they abscond from their parental responsibility. Now, if you're a zoologist who specializes in ostriches, I'm not trying to make a case for like, you know, nature, nurture, all that kind of stuff. But certainly in the thought of this poem, this was the understanding. That parents have a responsibility to the young. And here is an animal that doesn't, that, has to, that withdraws from that responsibility. And that's the indictment on the people of Israel. So it's not a purity issue. If it was about, they've become, they were no longer pure, there's a way back from that. But here, what lies at the heart of the problem, what led to the, lament, to the lamentable state of Jerusalem is that they had absconded from their responsibility. So it's much worse. And if you retreat from responsibility in your business or at work, there's uh, HR helpfully has a process where you get warnings. And if you heed the warnings and make correction, you're fine. If you don't heed those warnings, things will go from bad to worse. Whether you are challenged and your position is terminated in the workplace because you're just not acting responsibly, or even if it's all hidden under the carpet, and they say, well, we just don't want to deal with that, so we'll just let it go, then the whole organization begins to suffer, right, if you withdraw from responsibility. So the problem here is that Jerusalem, the people of Israel, have not heeded the warnings that have been brought to them time and again. And so Lamentations 4 is full of heartfelt concern for the people of Zion who are suffering, And their tragedy is set in the context of a history in which God called the city and the people who lived in the city to exercise their covenant responsibility. So here's the idea. You see my people living their lives out in the city, you will know something about me. You'll be able to see what I'm like made flesh. You will be able to know that I am loving, that I am full of mercy, and that I champion the cause of those who are the last, the least, the lost, and the lonely. You'll see that I'm a God of justice, and my people will put it on display. And so this poem laments the loss of people, great and small, and acknowledges that the community withdrew from that responsibility. They were entrusted and given a place of prestige, of honor, and instead they withdrew from it. Now, it doesn't happen overnight, but essentially they stopped praying. They stopped caring. Then they stopped doing. And they pursued their own interest. And their leaders had the began to be washed in the blood of innocent people. And as they pursued their own interests, as time went on, hearts turned to stone. The people of the covenant had become perpetrators of injustice, and God was left no choice but to deal harshly with them and to lead them into exile. 
With hearts of stone, they had lost sight of what it means to be children of God. The great promise we live in and we live under is that God reveals himself to us in the prophets, which is then taken on into the New Testament as a God who will come and who will pour out his spirit into our bodies and into our lives so that our hearts of stone can be turned to hearts of flesh. That promise is realized the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. But it's challenging, isn't it? I was, we were recently in, in Florida, in Destin, and, and um, I had supper with a number of atheists. It was so, such fun, just to listen to their questions and just kind of talk a little bit. And, and one of them said, he said, that the greatest challenge I find to being a Christian isn't that God exists. I've watched enough science fiction to make that leap. My challenge isn't even that he wants me to worship him. My challenge is that he wants me to want to worship him. And I don't understand that. I was like, oh wow, he's further along than, you know, it was amazing. But that's the thing, isn't it? He wants us to want to love him, to receive his love, to walk with him. Their hearts of stone led them to lose sight of what it means to be his children. Elsewhere, it says that the expectation was that they would act justly, they would love mercy, and they would walk humbly with their God. That's the expectation in Micah. That's the great challenge, and that's what they'd lost sight of. What about us? In the 21st century, are we in the 21st century? My math is off, yeah we are. Um, it's still the case that we're to exercise our covenant responsibilities. We are to be God's plan for East Dallas, for his church, is that we would be similar to a city set on a hill as a light to the nations, that we would worship him, not just gather on a Sunday, because you're spoiled for a choice of churches in Dallas, but that our lives would be set out like as if we're living lives of worship, where we put his character, his love, and mercy, and his justice on display. How is that possible? Well, he has sent us someone so that we could see what it looks like to be a son of God, a, a child of God, a daughter of God. When he stepped into the world himself, into our history as Jesus, he put it all together for us so we can look at him and see what it's like. The question facing us this morning is the question that faced the people of Israel, that always faces us, is will we use our individual freedom to pursue him, to worship him, to pray to him, to put his character, his love, and his mercy, and his justice on display? As we lament, there comes a moment. There comes a moment when we move through our stuff, and we begin to hear something else. 
we begin to see that God is moved by our hearts as we see that he draws near to us. And then we begin to hear what's on his heart. And as we begin to hear what's on his heart, we're to be moved by it. And so we take on a greater, oh, not a greater, but a different lament. And that's where things begin to change and to happen. And we begin to get these interests that, um, <laughs> how did I get here? Well, I'm involved in these areas, and, and um, how is it possible? But let me frame, as I close everything that I've said, is that if some of us may need help, learning how to lament. And that's why this, in some ways, this chapter is so helpful because the model to compare and contrast, right? And so if you need a, a, a way to begin to pray and to lament in your grief and loss, very practically, you could start by saying, Lord, my life was like this and here I am. I once had this and now I don't. I once had a great job and now I'm still looking and it's been years. Here's the great encouragement. The Lord Jesus, after he had risen, met with his followers on the road to Emmaus. And the great promise he made to them is that he would meet them in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of wine at Holy Communion. And so if you're in a place of lament, I wanna encourage you that as we come forward for communion to bring your lament to him and to receive the bread and the wine with the sure promise that he has promised to come and to meet us there. For some of us, this passage may be a warning, but the good news is that in his crucifixion, God took upon himself the punishment that I deserved. <laughs> Pretty spectacular. Um, knowing my history, some of you only know the, uh, the recent history, and it's good. I'm glad you don't know the, the uh, great unwashed history of my life. But I deserved punishing because of what I'd done. And likely, you, deserve, you do too. I'm just saying. I'm a mess. You're a mess. We've got that over with. And um, now we can move on. But he did it so that a great gift would be available to us that in his kindness, we could be led to a place of repentance. And repentance from the mouth of Jesus, now it's been interpreted by the church over the years in difficult ways that aren't necessarily in line with, with the teachings of Jesus, but repentance is a gift. And in his resurrection, we see that punishment has been taken off the table because he's taken the punishment. So what is left on the, on the table? Love. So out of love, he's motivated to lead us back. Now, I'm not suggesting any of us here are in that place where Jerusalem was, where they'd stopped praying, stopped caring, stopped doing. And if you're in a, a, in a pain point season in your life, the encouragement to you is that a bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. So I'm not, if you're lamenting, I'm not really speaking to you. But there is a warning here 
that if we use our individual freedom to pursue our own interests, we come into dangerous ground. And I've, I've gone through seasons like this. I have. And it wasn't that I was angry at God. It wasn't that I'd committed an overt sin. I wasn't even lamenting. It was much more dangerous. I'd become too busy. I'd become distracted. And the wake-up call would be when I would, Rachel and I would chat, and she said, David, you're doing everything right, but you've lost your tenderness. I was too busy. I was doing too much. And so it may, me, it may, you may need to repent that you've stopped praying, caring, and doing, but the bigger issue today may be the busyness. And the new direction is one of going intentionally slow. We've read through, well, I didn't get through it all, but enough of it, <laughs> a book called The Relentless, per, what? The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. See, I can't even get the book right, so I'm still learning. But a book by a man named John Mark Comer called The, Relu the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm worst of all y'all. So I've read the book, can't remember it. It's so good, I can't remember the name. Yeah, read it. Maybe you could give the sermon. Um, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So powerful. He talks about driving in the slow lane. I mean, in Dallas, there is no slow lane. Every way is fast, right? Go drive slowly or just follow the speed limit. It'll change your life. Take the long checkout line at Target. I know. <laughs> Who would do that? Yeah, life's too short, right? And maybe it is too short to go fast. Because when we begin to move intentionally slow, Chris says it to me all the time, like he's whispering in my ear, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. That's part of the essential doctrine of the Navy SEALs. Go slow to be smooth. And actually when you move slowly, because you don't make mistakes, when you go slowly, unless you're me, you end up doing things in a much more um, efficient way. When you go slow, you have time to ponder. You have time to think. Turn, turning the radio off when I drive. I mean, I love elect EDM. Electronic dance music is my jam. Like, you, know, you get that beat going. I'm living out all of the nine Fast and the Furious films when I'm driving a hybrid. It's awesome. But I have to turn it off and go slow so that I can think and have some margin because when I have margin, I care. And when I don't, I'm too busy for the war in Ukraine. Let's face it, I'm not gonna solve it. I can't solve Russia. So I'm just not gonna engage. Well, that's not right. So you go slow and you say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. That was the great prayer of King Jehoshaphat when they're facing annihilation. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Lord, I don't know how Ukraine's gonna play out, but I know you can help them and would you help them? And so I pray, even though I don't have the answers, I just seek him. 
That's my second point. When I arrived at seminary, I had no idea how to pray. I didn't. In fact, I'd been challenged in selection. They said to me, um, looking at what your parents do, I said, yeah. Your father's a lawyer, your mother's a judge. How are you going to serve the poor? What do you know about poverty? I said, well, if I'm honest, not very much. I said, so how do you expect to be able to have a ministry that reaches everyone? By then, I'd gone through nine months of seminary, and I had looked out for people that I could see knew how to pray. And I'd gone to them, and I said, hey, can we pray together? He said, sure. Yeah, what do you want? And like, because I don't know how to pray, and I, I need to learn how to pray. Just teach me to pray. And so when I faced this, it's a bit confrontational. She said, how do you expect to have a ministry to the poor? I said, I don't know. But I think I know how to pray a bit better than I did before. And I think Jesus has the answer, and I think he might just lead us. And she got so mad, but I got through. There's no judgment if you don't know how to pray. Sometimes we have to keep learning how to pray because when new things happen and grief hits, we lose sight of, we forget of how, to, how to meet with God, how to connect with him. But there are ample opportunities here at St. Bart's to learn how to pray. And if you'd like to learn how to pray, on the back of your bulletin is a sheet of paper designed to be torn out. Just like that, you fill it out and just put in the box, I wanna learn how to pray and we'll get you connected. Because here's the, here's, the, here's the beauty of it. As we lament and as we express ourselves in prayer, there comes a moment when we pick up on what moves our heart, moves his heart. He's moved by ours and our hearts become moved by his. And we may not understand the full breadth of how we might play a part in God's plan for the city of Dallas, but we don't have to, because he does. People asked me recently, uh, what do you think of Dallas? You know, you're from Canada, and you know, you lived in England. I said, I love the city. And they said, and I was really unguarded. And they said, why do you love Dallas so much? I said, because God lives there. God lives here. And we're his people. And he's inviting us to pay attention to his heart and to make our hearts known to him so that together with him, we might paint a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like in the city of Dallas. Let's pray. Lord, for those of us deep in lament, would you help us, give us words, give us ways to pour out our heart to you, pour out our heart in community. For those of us who are just going too fast, teach us to go slow, that we might have margin to care. For those of us who need help to learn how to pray, would you help us? Help us do it in community. Help us to do it with you. Thank you for the gift you've given us in your son. 
Would you come and move in power now as we carry on our service in Christ's name? Amen.